0: Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm your host, Nick Hayden. And I'm your other host, Timothy Deal. And we are entering 1933.
1: We are in the era of uh, the Great Depression and gangsters and Prohibition. Well, almost. Mostly. So
0: (laughs) so a lot of fun times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So speaking of, this week's movie is 42nd Street.
1: That's right. This is a musical best known for featuring choreography by Busby Berkeley, a famous choreographer from the era, and it'll be interesting to dig into
0: all that. But before we dig in, let's figure out what's going on in 1933 in movie history. Every kiss, every hug seems to act just like a drug.
2: You're getting to see you have it with me. Let me stay in your arms. I'm addicted to your charms. You're getting
0: to be a habit with me so we have sound right now Tim that's right we do
1: and we're gonna do a bit of a recap here from last season we uh, talked about the 30s in our episode on uh, 1932 with horse feathers so let's recap four things that we talked about in that one we'll just try to touch on them as briefly as we can. Uh, first off, the studio system is in effect. This tends to overlap more or less with what historians call Hollywood's golden age, which is said to usually begin with the era of sound in 1927. So the studio system is when there are five big studios. Which uh, are. Which are. You're going to make me Yes, qu- we're quizzing you. Okay. There's Warner Brothers, MGM, RKO, 20th Century Fox, and... Who am I forgetting? Paramount. Paramount. So RKO is the one that no one knows anymore. Not Yeah, it's not around anymore. There are also three lesser studios, uh, Universal, Columbia Pictures, and United Artists okay. at this time. Those are the, the big studios, and they tend to run everything. Again, the five major ones also have uh, are owning their own theaters. The whole line is kind of monopoly-ish. Yes, yes, from production to distribution to exhibition. Those are the three pillars of the film industry, and the studios own them all at this point. And I should clarify that this year, 1933, Three marks the founding of the last of the of the big major studios, okay um, that being 20th century, which we'll talk a little bit more about that later, okay. So, yeah, we're in the, the dawn of the studio system era, essentially. The Wild West is basically over. Pretty much. The film industry has been professionalized, standardized, uh, although talkies are the relatively new
0: thing in town. Yes, yeah, from 1927, basically.
1: 1927 right? is when The Jazz Singer came out and was the first majorly successful full-length feature film to feature sound in uh, film. And starting from there on, they just went full bore into it. So that means that they really, really leaned into the sound. The sound was a selling point, so that musicals were a very popular thing for a, a period of time. Fast-paced dialogue, because the movie producers thought people really want to hear dialogue that sounds snappy and cool and li- interesting to listen to, which
0: is what we saw a lot of in Horse Feathers. That's true, and honestly, I think we
1: saw in this movie too in Forty Second yeah, Street,
0: just not in a non-Marx Brother way.
1: Yeah, not in a non-comedic way, but certainly like there are times when I felt like you really need to be listening very closely because they talked very fast
0: and very very clever.
1: Yes, very very. Yeah. Sardonically, yeah, we'll, yep, we can that's a good idea. Yep. of course, the third thing going on in this decade, the Great Depression, of course, yes, uh, which hit in 1929, which just changed everything. We changed everything. Movies were still a relatively popular, cheap uh, method of entertainment, but that being said, it should be noted that the average weekly theater attendance dropped from 80 million in 1929 to 60 million in
0: 1932. So, a 25% drop, yeah,
1: yeah, that's nothing to laugh at, yeah. Uh, so, in order to really attract, keep Audiences coming in, they were going for spectacle, they were going for comedies, some sort of escapism. But also some movies, some studios also really liked having uh, society feature films. And we'll talk about that later as Yeah, well. both of those play into this movie, 42nd Street, in an interesting way. Uh, the fourth thing we should note is that the Hays Code, which was technically adopted in 1930, but was poorly enforced until mid-1934. Remind
0: us what the Hays Code is.
1: Hays Code is a method that the studios use to self-regulate themselves. It's they- kind of
0: a... Censorship, I mean... Kind
1: of, yeah, kind of a way of censorship. Like, there were guidelines, very written-out, specific guidelines about what sort of sexual content you were allowed to have, how you were allowed to portray authority, like the police, um, and about criminals and about making sure that they got their comeuppance and that sort of thing. But during this period, in 1933, even though the code exists, it's not really been widely enforced yet. And there's definitely a certain aura about the pre-code films that they're a bit naughtier than your normal black and white movies are. Mm-hmm. So, and We again, get a little bit of that in this movie. We will have some of that in this movie, too. So all these four things certainly play into effect in the story of 482nd Street. But to delve into some, into some a little bit new territory here um, in terms of our history discussion.
0: It's, because this is a musical, and we have never talked about 30s musicals.
1: That's right. Last season, our musical was from 1952. Talking about,
0: in some ways... Yes. The late 20s, 30s. But yeah. It's not the same thing.
1: Not quite the same thing. So I think it's worth noting that musicals and sound film went hand in hand originally. I mean, the jazz singer is about a guy who sings.
0: But you can hear, let's do something artistic with our hearing let's
1: yeah yeah because you want to like music is a powerful thing so of course the movies are going to want to incorporate that um and so there are a lot of movies that followed in the jazz singer's footsteps that included music oftentimes probably with a backstage like a main character was a singer of some sort or like a
0: performer and even marx brothers last season they played there were some musical interludes
1: that's true that's true. However, by late 1930, the market had already become oversaturated. According to one source I looked at, it said that Hollywood released more than 100 musical films in 1930, but only 14 in 1931. So, again, the the market had just been flooded with these things, as markets tend to do. Yeah. I mean, oh, we, that
0: worked? Let's do it 10 times.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Things haven't changed all that much no. in Chobas. <laughs> so the interesting thing about that is that this movie 42nd Street which is originally based off a book a novel oh I did not know that okay. yeah and the studio head of Warner Brothers Jack Warner did not want it to actually be a musical okay but the producer of this particular film Daryl Zanuck basically told Bubsy Berkeley to go ahead and film the musical numbers they basically filmed them at nights when Jack Warner wasn't you know around and he didn't even know that there were musical numbers until the film was already done <laughs> uh, but thankfully he's Saw it and he's like, I like this, so we'll keep it. And Busby Berkeley is credited with reviving or rescuing the genre of, of the movie musical. He did four films this year in 1933, wow. starting with 42nd Street then going on to Gold Diggers in 1933, Footlight Parade and Roman Scandals. And he developed his unique style of interesting choreography, but also arranging the ladies as usually, yeah. you know, chorus girls that he was arranging with interesting, striking visual arrangements. And this one in particular, you you see them on like a rotating platform and yeah. it, it has kind of this kaleidoscope effect.
0: Yeah. What I view is that kind of old timey spectacle of all the ladies dancing and they're all like in some sort of... Interesting outfit. Interesting outfit and in lines, and it's kind of curving around and moving. And yeah. I don't know. Yeah, he, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever seen him do something. But I had in kind of in my brain that sort of idea.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's been emulated in various things. Like in Gold Diggers of 1933, it features a song, We're in the Money, which is a very interesting yeah. song with depression. Everyone's probably got money on their mind. Yeah. And the ladies are like carrying giants' coins and things like that. In Footlight Parade, there's a big water ballet sequence. Okay. Which kind of gets emulated in other things. Like if you may remember The Great Muppet Caper. Okay, yes. emulates a lot of classic Hollywood tropes. Mm-hmm. And Miss Piggy's water ballet is in a lot of ways kind of a homage to Busby. Berkeley. Okay.
0: I yep, yeah, maybe that's why I had it stuck in my head from Muppets. <laughs> it's entirely possible.
1: And all of those movies I just mentioned, if I didn't say this before, they were among the highest-grossing films of the year. They were very popular and uh, we'll get into some more of that later.
0: Okay, so obviously musicals are big this year because they had four of them that were high-grossing. What other things are kind of going on movie-wise this year? Anything else we have heard of or should have heard of? The top-grossing films of the year, well, the
1: top-grossing one was Roman Sandals, which was no another- Sandals. Oh,
0: sorry. Roman Roman Sandals or something else.
1: Yes, Roman Scandals, kind of hinting at some of the salacious content in there, probably. Which was, like I said, another buzzy Berkeley movie. That one stars Eddie Cancer, famous comedian of the era. Um, The Oscar winners for this year, Best Picture, went to Cavalcade. Best Director, Frank Lloyd, for Cavalcade. Best Actor was Charles Lofton for The Private Life of Henry VIII and Best Actress Catherine Hepburn for Morning Glory. Again, I think none of these were in the top grossing films of the year so we already have back in... We
0: already have this Oscar uh, is that what people are watching thing going on? Yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, this is the first time this season we've got to talk about Oscars. I
1: should. Admit, when did Oscars start? Um, around this, this time. Right around now. this time, very close. I want to say late 1920s. Okay. So we're, yeah, it's all these things are kind of happening. As
0: as we're uh, solidifying the studio and stuff, they wanted and say hey, let's award ourselves yeah, basically <laughs> let's honor the the best among us essentially yes. So,
1: our other nominations for uh, this episode, we had Sons of the Deserts, which is a Laurel and Hardy comedy. Again, mm-hmm. we'd already had comedies, but I love Laurel yeah, and Hardy. Yeah. They're good. Would
0: have been a good pick. They're but. fun.
1: Also, The Invisible Man, starring Claude Rains, who is an actor from the era that I always enjoy seeing. I also wanted to give a shout out to, in case our audience ever gave us nominations, we had uh, one of our faithful listeners, Nathan Marchand, send us nominations, and he suggested Son of Kong, which is not surprising for him, because he hosts the Monster <laughs> Island Film blog. Podcast, which of course Son of Kong is a sequel to King Kong which also premiered this year in 1933. I
0: think King Kong would have been on our list if we hadn't both seen it. Yes. It it is a great film.
1: Yes, and we both watched that movie for the Monster Island Film Vault, so shout out to that. And it was a great film. And I I did see Son of Kong also for that same podcast. Oh, you did? I
0: had forgotten that,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. So definitely it goes off the rule of uh, if you can't go bigger go funnier, Okay, which makes sense. Yeah, we probably would have had King Kong as a nomination otherwise, but but we went with uh Old Busby Berkeley. Yeah, very different than what we saw last time we were in the 30s. That's true, so, and different from a comedy, different yeah. different vibe. Uh, other notable events from this year, now notably, I should, <laughs> notably. Notably, the notable events were noted <laughs> today. <laughs> So this movie, 42nd Street, came out in March of 1933, so okay. all, all these events took place after it, but it's still the same year, so we'll make notes that on June 6th, 1933, the drive-in theater is patented in Camden, New Jersey. Oh, interesting. Okay. On June 26th marks the founding of 20th Century Pictures by Daryl Zanuck and Joseph Schenck. Now, you may have noticed that Daryl Zanuck is the same guy who I said produced this movie. <laughs> this movie was actually a Warner Brothers movie, like we said. But shortly after this, Daryl Zanuck had a uh, dispute with the head, uh, Jack Warner, and basically realized because of that, like, okay, I'm not ever going to be seen as an equal a partner here. So basically, he left Warner Brothers and went and founded this other studio, 20th Century Pictures, which would later, in 1935, merge with Fox Studios to form 20th Century Fox. Makes sense. So there you go. Also in this year, 1933, on July 31st, the director Fritz Lang left Germany permanently. He's the one who directed Metropolis and M., and, and things are going on in Germany at this point. Yeah, yeah, just kind of a hint that yeah, Germany is not in the best of shape at, in 1933. On September 6th, Daily Variety, a trade newspaper, is published for the first time in Hollywood. I still read. I was reading a Variety article today about I think the box office. So it's so still
0: years of Daily Variety.
1: Yeah, it's still it's still a major force in Hollywood. And on December 29th, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers appear on screen together for the first time in Flying Down to Rio. I mostly note that because Ginger Rogers is included in the main, well, she's included in the cast of this movie. She's not a main character yet, but her partnership with Fred Astaire would become a very famous dancing duo, Mm -hmm. and that's just about to get started.
0: Nice. I beg your pardon,
1: but are you by any chance the, the, what is the word, the stage manager? Hey, Anne, come out from under that accent. I see you. Lolly! Darling! (laughs) You remember Anne Lola?
2: Not any time Annie. Say, who could forget her? She only said no once, and then she didn't hear the question.
0: All right, so that's kind of the rundown of the culture and the situation in the movie. So what is this movie, 42nd Street? Is it a documentary about construction workers? <laughs> it is not. Okay, so what is this movie? <laughs> okay. This one was
1: directed by Lloyd Bacon, produced by Daryl Zanuck, choreography by Busby Berkeley. Cast includes Warner Baxter, B.B. Daniels, George Brentz, Ruby Keeler, Ginger Rogers, and Dick Powell. The screenplay was by Rian James and James Seymour, based off a novel by Bradford Ropes. To get actually to your question, of what is this movie? What is this movie? (laughs) This is a backstage musical drama set in contemporary 1930s Broadway, which begins with the excited word around town that producers Jones and Barry are putting together a show called Pretty Lady. The starring lady of the show, Dorothy Brock, is being courted by the show's financial backer, but she is secretly continuing a relationship with her former vaudeville partner, Pat Denning. The hired director of the show, Julian Marsh, has been warned by his doctor that his high-pressure job may kill him, but the depression has left him broke and he desperately needs the new show to be a hit so he can retire. Casting takes place and introduces us to some experienced chorus girls and naive newcomer Peggy Sawyer, who attracts the interest of both Denning and the show's male lead, Billy Lawler. Tensions rise amid the grueling rehearsal schedule and fomenting relationship drama. Will the cast of Pretty Lady be able to put on a hit show? So, of course, this is in black and white. The screen ratio is the standard 4-3, ratio 1.37 over 1. The length is 89 minutes, about an hour and 29 minutes. The score is your typical Hollywood orchestral underscore with Broadway-inspired songs, with music written by Harry Warren and lyrics by Al Dubin. The music was arranged, according to IMDb, by Ray Heindorf. And I don't really remember the orchestral background that much. It feels, like I said, pretty standard that era. But the the songs, they're decent songs. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're sort of... We'll talk more about the content of the musical
2: later.
0: So, anyways... Why is this still well-known today? What uh, effect did it have, I guess, first, financially? First off,
1: well, it was a big success in 1933. It's the eighth highest-grossing film of the year. Uh, it's been credited with rescuing Warner Brothers from CC at the time, and uh, it would invite many more musicals to follow. Which we mentioned a couple of them, yeah. yeah and then, have. critically, at the time, do they like it? As far as I could tell, yes. Uh, Mordant Hall of the New York Times said, "Quotes the liveliest and one of the most tuneful screen musical comedies that has come out of Hollywood and Josh Mosher of The New Yorker called it a bright movie with as pretty a little fantasy of Broadway as you may hope to see, though he described the plot as the most conventional one to be found in such doings. Uh, it was nominated for Best Picture and Best Sound, though one neither, and it currently still has a 96% rating on Rotten Tomatoes with 25 reviews. The audience score, though, is 74%. So, so
0: critics seem to like it better than just your average show. At least, you're right. At least on Rotten Tomatoes. At least on Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. Yeah. All right, it went off well at the time. It saved Warner Brothers possibly from bankruptcy what is its legacy? What's going, you know, why do we still care? Why do we still care? <laughs> well, again, this is because we like Warner Brothers. Yeah,
1: that's true. Again, it was kind of considered the revival of the musical genre. Mm-hmm. Busby Berkeley would continue to have a successful career through the 1930s. His fad became a little bit more passe toward the end of the decade. You know, if you think about 1939 saw the release of The Wizard of Oz. It's a very different style of musical than yes. this is. The music is much more integrated with the story, less focused on you <laughs> fancy choreography stuff but also many of the young cast from this movie would continue into even greater successes including of course Ginger Rogers and also Dick Powell who would have a very successful career after this
0: and then I just saw recently that it's still on Broadway or at least uh, a theater may not Broadway but it's still it's
1: still it was adapted into a Broadway stage musical in 1980 that uh, includes several other of the songwriters Warren and Dubin uh, a lot more of their songs because they would there's only about three in this about five actually are there five really? well there's a couple that they rehearse, okay. And then that's we, true. when we actually see them perform the musical, we we see three in a row, basically, yeah, practically, okay, yep. But they added several more of the songwriter's songs from the same period, because I, I think they worked on the, the music, the Busby Berkeley musicals that came right after this. Okay, so they, it's kind of a Busby Berkeley collage, uh, I think so. Okay. I think so, the Broadway version, and it's been revived several times since 1980, including the run this year, 2023, in London's West End. Do director, I mean, has it made some lists and some directors say like, yes, that one there. (laughs) I don't know about directors have referenced it, at least not in what I was looking at, but it was selected in 1998 by the United States Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. (laughs) And it made the following American Film Institute lists, the AFI lists for 100 songs, 42nd Streets got listed at number 97.
0: Come and meet those dancing feet. On the avenue, I'm taking you to 42nd Street.
1: Under 100 movie quotes, at number 87, this quote. Sawyer, you're going out a youngster, but you've got to come back a star. And on the AFI's list of 25 musicals, this was not one of their TV specials, but they did do their own list of the top 25 musicals, and this was listed as number 13 Mm -hmm. on that list. And it is also, I should note, included in that book that you own a 1,001 movies you must see before you die. Yes,
0: I'm not sure. I guess I won't die for a
1: while, but you've got a lot more to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You better. Like, it's required. You must watch
0: all 1,000 of these movies. Well, I'm immoral then until I, I just say that last <laughs> one until... And then you'll be good. <laughs> yes, like, clockwork orange, you're not, we can watch. So you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you'll live forever.
0: Exactly. All right, Tim. So that's that's what other people think about it, but... This is our podcast, so let's let's talk about what we think about this thing. So, okay. did you
1: know much about this going into it? When we picked this one out, I knew it was BuzzFeed Berkeley. And uh, you knew that
0: name. And I knew that one name. Come-
1: I'm sure I would seen it referenced in, because I used to always watch those AFI lists. So, yeah. that, so anything that's this on there, I know I've at least heard of before. Theoretically, yeah. Theoretically. I didn't know much about the story. I figured it was kind of a musical about making musicals kind of thing.
0: Um, I, yeah, I guess we should it. mention just to the audience, because the vast majority is just backstage Practicing, plotting, relationships. Mm-hmm. And then the last, what, 15 minutes?
1: Yeah, 20 minutes,
0: something like that. Is, it, the actual, is the actual musical. Yeah,
1: which they'll do a little, a quick backstage scene in between each song, but it's mostly back to back to back. Yeah. But yeah, I, I had seen The Gold Diggers of 1933. Okay. Uh, I think I watched that in film school at some point.
0: Is that all similar to this?
1: You know, it's been long enough. I don't really remember okay. a lot of the details. But it's, I mean, Gold Diggers itself is a remake of a previous Gold Diggers movie. That's why it has this. Of uh, 1933. The, yeah, exactly. Oh, we should just do that every time we do a remake of a movie. <laughs> that would be <laughs> Indiana Jones 2055.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. So how about you? Were you in it? No, that, I went blind to this thing. Like, I'd never heard of it. You know, like, ah, it's not even 30s musical. We'll just go with it. I will note that I guess Janelle
1: had sung, I think, the title of the song in, oh, yeah. in high school. Like, there was like a Broadway thing. And she said she remembered being slightly scandalized by the lyrics <laughs> <laughs> back then. She was a very conservative teenage girl.
0: <laughs> but All right. Well, then let's go and see what we thought of it immediately after watching it last week. Okay. These from the fifties, innocent and sweet. Sexy ladies from the eighties, who are indiscreet. They're side by side, they're glorified. Where the underworld can be
2: the elite, naughty, gaudy, body, sporty, body, gangrene.
1: This is a funny one to me. I mean, as someone who has always been kind of theater adjacent—well, I don't know, always theater adjacent—but has been theater adjacent. I don't always identify with Broadway stories, at least the ones where it's all glitz and glamour. And I guess here's the thing. The idea of living in a city like New York just does not appeal to me at all. <laughs> so I, I don't have any of that like, oh, wow, all the hustle and bustle is all super exciting. And so that's what, what the showbiz would be like. I'm not sure it's the life, but I feel like that's sort of the thing. that This is trying to uh, sort of like wonder of the busyness and the showbiz even though it's glitz and glamour, but also, like, flawed humans. I don't know. It's not really my cup of tea, I don't think. But it was a very interesting visually... I feel like I've said that a lot lately. It's like, eh, it wasn't my thing, but
0: <laughs> the visuals are cool. What do you think, Nick? Um, I'll just go from the lot angles, just from writing side. It looks like... I mean, it seems like the stories like, they just have different blocks of ideas, and they can't quite figure out how to put them all together. There's just different plot lines, like, some of the characters aren't fully developed or they just show up and do stuff it's like it's a prototype of like later this sort of movie hmm. in some ways I, I don't know it, we'll learn next week <laughs> about where this sits in the in the history of the movies but I feel like a lot of these elements of like the new girl and the, the director who's panicking and the all that sort of stuff didn't quite gel yet but I don't know that's where I am interesting yeah. ingredients yeah. at least yeah anything you know
2: yeah what story did we watch just now? <laughs> Probably partly because characters weren't very developed. The plot felt ambiguous and like I couldn't quite figure out what the story was that was being told to me. If there was one, it seemed like it wasn't being pieced together for me, I guess. Like I have to string together in my mind what the story was based on the events and I have to say that I, there were a lot of characters I really didn't care for in this <laughs> movie. I understand in a given era, it's, it's fine to go on dates with different people at the same time. It was called circular dating at one point. But there seems to be uh, more than that going on in this play. And there's that old guy that put a lot of money into the play f- and wants the main singer to spend time with him in return that felt kind of yucky to me and i got anxious just watching that director (laughs) no pressure you know don't say anything encouraging to these girls after they've been dancing their feet off for you i understand that's just a different mentality but yeah yeah
0: So that's what we thought or tried to think. It seems like we were um, conflicted or not sure exactly. A little bit. Again, I feel
1: like this was another movie for this season that uh, was a little different or at least not as focused maybe as we were expecting it to be.
0: As I thought about it later, we had talked about last episode about the Hollywood formula of the one active character. Mm. I think my brain automatically was searching for that. And it the movie, I think, is more of a mosaic of like Broadway types and almost just seeing how, how Broadway is for all these people. I mean, they have a couple main characters, but it's not really rotated around that in the same way that modern films are.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And we did talk about the goal-driven protagonists. And in this one, you really do have like a goal-driven ensemble
0: in some ways. Like, it's it's almost like, hey, let's just see how, how different types of people are reacting to trying to make it big during Depression Broadway. And I don't know, you know, we did talk
1: about like that as being a key point of classic Hollywood style, but when thinking about it, it's like at the same time, I do know that there were other movies like this in that time period. A big one from nineteen thirty-two that we didn't watch was Grand Hotel, which I know I know is notable for having an all-star cast. Okay. So lots of different actors and how they interact and play off of each other was a feature of of some of these. But I remember the thing that felt off for me about the whole thing. Uh, which kind of came into focus when I was watching uh, one of TCM on Turner Classic Movies on their website. They have some of their intros that they would do. For different do movies. For different movies that they would show when it's on their cable channel. And Ben Mankiewicz called this a kind of a non-escapist escapism that became kind of a defining part of 1930s musicals.
0: It's like, on one hand, it's, we expect musicals to kind of be big and glitzy and whatever, and it, and it had that. And but, it kind of feel good. But it's also like... It's just kind of like cre like not create. What's the right? I'm not the right word. Gritty, almost. We're kind of gritty. I mean, the, the scenes with the
1: rehearsals really are like the director is screaming at all the girls, trying to get them to do it right. So they're all
0: exhausted. You know? Yeah, and- the, the old man's just kind of. A leech?
1: Or, yeah. Or, yeah. And interestingly, so the original novel, the author stated that he kind of thought saw his novel as more of like an expose. He felt the American public needed a book that was sort of the Uncle Tom's cabin for chorus girls.
0: Well, see, it kind of felt that, like, half of it felt that way. Like, it's trying to be like, look, they're kind of being abused and objectified and whatever, except never really went all the way with it. Yeah. It's like, it started, and then it just kind of, like... It's this weird mix.
1: Yeah, it's ver- this really funny mix of are we are supposed to be enjoying the, this process or is this more of a look how overworked all these ladies are? Yeah.
2: Stop it, stop it, stop it! It's brutal!
1: May I remind you that Pretty ladies out-of-town opening is not far away? It's been advertised as a musical comedy with dancing! I kind of suspect that, and again, when Ben Manklis was talking about how this became kind of a feature, it was sort of, you know, again, the 1930s aspect of, Hey, we don't want you to sugarcoat things. We want you to say, tell it like it is there. I've heard that that is a feature of films from this era that like, want you to be honest and like, we aren't, aren't taking any of your, you know, BS basically. But then at the same time, so you go through that, like, yes, this is hard work. The ladies are, they're here for a job because they need the money. Yeah. But, at the end, we have these, your reward basically is like,
0: but look at this. This is fun. It's <laughs> this great, yeah, and like, and everyone gets happy, like, finds a lover, or gets stardom or whatever, and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> it feels a little like whiplash. Yeah,
1: yeah. But, I mean, when they put it into that context, like, okay, I can kind of see, but it, this movie doesn't have the immediate timelessness that we felt Singing in the Rain did. No,
0: I think the movie makes more sense once you know the context of the era, I feel like. I feel like you almost need it to, at least for me, to appreciate it more than I did watching it blind. Yeah, yeah, it's true.
1: I mean, and it's fascinating as a comparison to Sing in the Rain because that is also a movie about movie making, yeah. about show business, and it's fascinating because it, it's kind of a love letter to the process. Yes, yeah. and it acknowledges that there are times of frustration, but it, it's also
0: like. But man, this is fun. Yeah, and this one's very much like, look, they're just picking the girls based on how their legs look. And like you work until you keel over and the mob's involved if you don't want something to happen. You're almost out of money and it's, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. And yet at the end, we still
1: have big s- smiles and we put on a show. We're going to give them a show. And you, can, you can go out there and come
0: back a star. Right, yeah. right. It's kind of weird. It is. Come
2: on, come on girls. Now lift your dresses up. Come on, higher, higher. I want to see the legs. Turn around. Come on, turn
1: around. So we also need to talk about Busby Berkeley's choreography style since this is known for it. I mean... So he had a military background. Okay. I, oh. I, I think so. Some of the his inspiration oh, for very... the, the kicking legs and all that stuff being in unison, yep. you know, it feels very military. And it, I mean, this is a very glitzy version of it. But yeah, some of the shots, I'm trying to remember which musical number it is. Is it, is it in 42nd Street? Or, is it or was it Young and ones? Healthy? There was some where, with all the legs. It could be, <laughs> yes. There's a thing where like there's lots of... Lots of women's legs. It feels kind of uh, Radio Secret rockets, except the camera's like going through the legs or the the legs are coming like underneath. And they're like on a
0: platform or rotating or
1: something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing about that, this is, again, a stage musical. So story-wise, the music numbers are built into the story of their performers. This is what they do. But the camera actually goes places <laughs> that you actually would not have the same experience if you were just watching this on stage. If you
0: watched it on stage, you'd be like, I can't see anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like, some of the shots, some of the sequences are really built for the camera to be above the ladies looking mm-hmm. down as they're, like, lying on this rotating platform that's going
0: two different directions. And so you got sets of legs. No, and- some of 42nd Street which was felt more stage-ish and, um, and shuffle off to Buffalo, like, it, like this giant – Yeah, that's true. – giant set. And that was pretty interesting back and forth. I I mean they do the camera and play with it too but it at least had more of the imitation of trying to actually be a yes stage play
1: I think Busby Berkeley I read somewhere that he was one of the first choreographer slash directors that really encourage the camera to dance with the performers. Which, yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's very important. And so that's, even if his kind of grand scale of things didn't wind up being a feature of musicals going forward, that at the very least is certainly a pretty important part of his style and what he contributed to the movie movie musical. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to do dig enough into when did this really change, like again, going more from oh, we're just doing a stage thing to the music numbers being more a part of the story. Yeah. I mean, by the end of this decade, I think I said on here, if, if not yeah. on this podcast before, by 1939, we've got The Wizard of Oz. Which is integrated fully into, into the, the story, story and, yeah. and the style and all that stuff. So, so yeah, it's it's an interesting relic of the
0: time.
2: <suspicious noise> all
0: right, Tim, let's get to questions here. Okay. So... My wife and I were talking. Is there any setup for Peggy Sawyer to actually be pushed in as... Is it believable that she can be the stand-in for the star? Okay, so,
1: yeah, we have the cliche at some point where the big star can't go on and do it, so the the young novice steps in and and does it.
0: Yeah, We were talking that it's very... Sudden. It, seemed, it seems con- more contrived than normal. Yeah. I don't know. Do you do you think they was set up or you think it just, they just did that because that's how you get the musical number? I mean, or is it just shoehorned in and you're supposed to buy it? Hmm. Going off my gut, I can't
1: think of a really great example where everyone's like, oh, wow, she's amazing. She should have this number. It did kind of feel a little out of nowhere to me. And does that hurt the movie? Um... Yeah. I mean, it certainly, it certainly raises the stakes right before the show goes on. It's yeah. not like, okay, we've done all this work and now we're ready and here we go. And then yeah. do you, and so it adds a little bit of drama, like right before everything starts. That being said, it certainly doesn't help the the non-timelessness of this. You have the director putting a lot of pressure on her right before she goes on. <laughs> a lot of pressure. Everyone else is like, Wow, like I guess some people might be motivated, but other people are like, what are you doing? You're stressing th- this poor girl out. Yeah. Like she's
0: gonna perform even worse now. Yeah, that w- I just if I was training like there was a couple things where she was like, oh look, she picked up dancers, she worked really hard, but it's just like her more. Than, well, I mean, I guess she's our main character, but she's not shown herself to be particularly unique from anyone
1: yeah i mean the fact that this is such an ensemble thing probably also doesn't really give her a, a big good chance to be yeah. main character feeling
0: i feel so, yeah. like you could do other, a few shots but again that's that's in hindsight yeah all right so that was my serious one so we
1: talked a little bit trying to figure out if this is a uh, celebration or a critique of the show business yes yeah. if you were to pick a direction to move this movie more in Oh. which
0: direction would you would you want it to be more a celebration or should it be more of a critique of showbiz? Here's what I think. I'm not sure I would want it to be, but I think it most naturally lends itself to being critique. Okay. I think that's where I would move. I, I think it would be a movie no one would watch then mm. <laughs> <laughs> or not want to watch and be really depressing. But I don't know. I, I feel like it... It spends I, more time I, on the I feel the like critique. it is more truthful in that end than it is on the feel-good part. Mm, I see. Like my complaint about Peggy Sawyer, just I feel like it is more honest on the on the gritty side than it is on the feel good side. Okay, and so I would lean into that probably more naturally. Okay, if you were to go that direction, would you keep musical numbers in it? Do
1: you think, or like what sort of resolution, what sort yeah. of conclusion would you have? Well, see, that's the, yeah.
0: I I could keep the musical numbers. but I feel like you you'd maybe add a few more scenes in between showing the backstage. Okay, now it was interesting. At the very end, the directors basically just beat up and everyone's saying, Oh, he didn't do anything, it was all the girls, you know. Yeah. And so he and so it has a little bit of the expose feeling at the end even that yeah. like he doesn't get any credit for anything.
1: Yeah, it leaves it all on a bit of an ambiguous
0: note. It does end on an ambiguous note. So I think you could do more of more backstage during the musical. Now, it'd be horribly depressing. And I don't know why you know, <laughs> do watch it, but I feel like <laughs> I feel like it'd be almost more natural to do with the beginning
1: half. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Given the time period that it came out in, yeah, it may not have been a success at all. Like, it might have been a more honest play, but, it, like, I imagine this time period, like I said, you want to go into a movie and you want it to acknowledge how tough times are, but then you also want to leave it feeling a little yeah. bit better,
0: so... No, <laughs> no, I think you could fix it and make it, make it work more in that way, too. That wouldn't be hard either, I guess, I find it. I think a lot of music is on that, so my... Just my artistic brain's like, well, it had a lot of potential. Go the other way, we could just go with that. But I don't think I would like the movie.
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe if if you were to have the movie come down and say something a little bit more definitive, like that, the fact that it doesn't that it's say got, anything, yeah, it doesn't say a lot about how much of these characters' behavior is good, how much of it is bad. It's just yeah. there, and like maybe if it was more trying to pick
0: a side of. Of something, (laughs) something, yeah. It just kind of it presents all the stuff, and then it says, "And here's a musical, (laughs) (laughs) practically." Okay, silly question. So it seems to me often Sesame Street will teach lessons with you know. I remember the letter B instead of beetle the Beatles letter B. Oh, Um, and again, Forty Second Street, Sesame Street. So they're doing a musical. Okay, what are they teaching with their parody of? 42nd Street.
1: Oh, man. Now I, I'm almost tempted to look up Muppet Wiki to see if they have done a 42nd Street <laughs> thing, because you're right, that does feel exactly up their alley. It does. Um, but what are they teaching us? My first thought is uh, like a numbers thing. Okay, well, like, I mean it's 42nd
0: Street. 42nd right? <laughs> Street.
1: But my, what I wonder is they, they tend not to go above 12 when they talk about numbers. <laughs> like, they don't ever uh, have the number the number today be um, uh, anything higher than 12, usually. So I don't know if they'd actually go all the, count all the way up to 42 or not. I guess it would be a square one thing then. <laughs> Probably. Maybe it would be like the, uh, if they did, maybe they, it would be like the 40th Second Street. Like you have all these Second Streets and then you count all the Second
0: Streets until there's 40. Oh, of them. okay. Okay. Nice. So the count is the director? Yeah, basically. I mean, Abby Cadabby is Peggy Sawyer.
1: Yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Prairie Dawn like, would be, she'd would, yeah. be highly involved. I mean, I guess depending on yeah, this is what you do. You do a big conflict between Prairie Dawn and Count Von Count. Like, yep. she, which I don't know they ever had much interactions. There was a number of interactions between Prairie Dawn and Cookie Monster, and Cookie Monster just driving Prairie Dawn nuts. She's very like trying to organize me, very rational. I, I feel and, like
0: Cookie Monster would be the guy with a giant cigar making <laughs> making. Okay, that guy was which, my
1: favorite character. of The whole he movie. he was amazing. I wish he was in more scenes. There was just that one scene where he, the guy with the cigar, just like. Like, and he's making quips. I mean, he was great. He was. He was great. He needed more screen time. Yes.
2: I don't like his face or any part of him. He looks like a
0: Bulgarian ball weevil mourning its firstborn. So,
1: I like your question more, honestly. But <laughs> are there any songs you would like to see added to this movie?
0: Added to this movie? Yeah, because,
1: like, again, this musical really only has, like, five. Yes.
0: We see two no, numbers. No, does it have to be to the musical? Or does it have to, or can it be anywhere in the movie or does we have to stick it's in pretty lady that's what it's called yeah yeah that's the name of the musical i I feel like we need pretty lady oh the actual let's have a song called pretty lady
1: okay yeah i can see that
0: and then it could be sung between the various couples going on like it's on stage was then it's also backstage you know i like this back front stage stuff that's true it bleeds into both storylines yep that could be fun yeah let's do that and you can have a Poor letrous old man in the audience being pretty lady. You, you left <laughs> laugh me. The guy who who pays for the whole oh, musical, but doesn't get
1: any women for himself.
0: He's a horrible man. He's. I mean, <laughs> he just feels really skeevy. <laughs> All right, that's yes. I would add pretty lady to this musical pretty lady because, like, I'm watching this musical. I'm like, I have no idea what the plot of this thing. Is. <laughs> the, <laughs> somehow
1: the the plot of the story within the story makes even less sense than the plot in Singing <laughs> in the Rain. <laughs> So, Tim, here's a real question. Did we like the movie? Um, Well, I think we've pointed out enough things wrong with it that uh, listeners might have an idea. But, I mean, the historical context helps a lot in
0: understanding this one. With the historical context, I can appreciate it more. I don't think it makes me like it anymore. Mm, That's kind of rough.
1: Yeah. Like I said in in my instant reaction things, I... I've seen showbiz stories done really well. We had that yeah. with Singing in the Rain. I think a lot of the time the Muppets do great yeah. showbiz, behind-the-scenes kinds of stories. This one felt, like we said, incomplete. Like I either needed it to be more of a critique or more of a celebration. No question. They've been doing that sort of play array, right? This is not like the first time it's sort of a... Yeah, the, the kind of let's put on a show sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, I don't think that's a new aspect. It did probably establish a lot of the, you know, we said that some of these characters feel a little archetypal. Yeah. I think you said in the book, and the 1001 movies
0: kind of established did, some of these Or things. at least pushed some of the archetypes into the popular consensus. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the question then. Would we recommend it to our casual movie fans or just to more select people? This is what I think for more select people. If you're into Broadway,
1: if you're into musicals, it might be, I mean... It, if you're is, a Broadway, ste- it is a
0: stepping stone.
1: It is a stepping stone. And you might be more established things that came after it you might already be more familiar with it from the broadway musical than the actual movie no, if you're pro- yeah that's true i know my sister joanna was she i don't think she was familiar with the movie but she had heard some of the songs that actually weren't from the movie so if you're into that maybe check it out if you're curious about the history of it otherwise even though it's on the afi list and i normally say everything on afi well most things on afi are worth probably worth watching this one, I think, is more for uh, the select audiences. I
0: think so. Yeah, it does seem more of it seems more or less for its place in history than as a stand, purely for cinema.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to me that it still is ranked as highly as it is in Rotten Tomatoes, and I don't know if that's just there's a cultural disconnect of people who are more, maybe people who are more New York like this movie more it's than I true. would. I'm
0: not ever in super like let's go make it big on. Broadway. I mean that motivation and appeal with me, I can have fun movies with it, but that particular appeal is not there for me. Sure. So really our verdict is... (laughs) mm, It's skippable. Yes, it's skippable. So thank you for listening to episode 14 of Let's Finally Watch This, 1933. Next episode, we will be watching... Shadow of a Doubt, which is an Alfred Hitchcock film, and it is said to be his
1: favorite of his own films. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited. I don't think I've seen it. Nick thinks he
0: might have. I think I might have seen it. Yes. <laughs> that sounds very um certain. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, please subscribe to us on your podcatcher of choice. Visit DerilledTrainsOfThought.com for other episodes and other podcasts by
1: us. And if you haven't listened to our 1932 discussion uh, where we covered horse feathers last season, go check it out. You can get more details about the 1930s there. All right. I guess
0: until next decade, this has been Nick. And this is Tim. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.